So the, the proposition here for today coming from Ephesians 2 verses 19 through 22 is this, that God wants the church to fulfill his purposes. So, so even though you, you may not find the word church, uh, that, that's what it's talking about when it, when it mentions these, the imagery, for example, like the household of God. And, and through all this, God has a purpose for his universal church. So let's think about some, as, as we think about the, the church here and what God's trying to do through it. We need some guiding stars. It's going to bring security. Uh, so we need something that's, that's not going to disorient us. We need something that's going to orient us and help us here. Uh, the first thing we can see here is as a, as a guiding star, a fixed star that's going to bring security is that we are dear to God. That's point number one. If you're taking notes, we're dear to God and, and uh, you can see how we are dear to God. You should be asking, okay, great. That sounds awesome. But how am I, how are we? the church, dear to God. Well, notice, as verse 19 says, we're no longer foreigners. Verse 18 told us that we have access to the king of kings. Uh, you have you have total access, in fact, to the whole trinity, the whole Godhead. And that means that we're no longer foreigners or aliens. And so alienation from God was a serious matter for the unbelievers. And I, isolation from the promises uh, that, were, that were given to Israel was a serious issue. And it, it, that characterized the Christian's former status, so that we're without hope. But notice, God says it's no longer the case. That is no longer your status. We're no longer aliens and foreigners. We are not strangers in a foreign land. And so you might ask, well, what are we now then? If we're not strangers and aliens, what are we now? Well, verse 19 says this, that we are fellow citizens. We're fellow citizens. We typically, uh, if you're a citizen, you a lot of people get passports uh, showing their citizenship, and then you get all kinds of wonderful rights and privileges that come with that. But notice, uh, we are fellow citizens here with God's people, it says, and if you've been an alien in a foreign country, then you'll understand just how important citizenship is. Uh, let's see, I, I've been in New Zealand now, what, 21 years, something like that. And when I first came, I, I was an alien. I was a stranger. I was a foreigner some 21 years ago. And it felt really, really strange. I didn't, it didn't have all the rights and the privileges of citizenship. In fact, I was taxed. When I first got here under a, uh, a work visa, but uh, couldn't vote. So really strange. Didn't like that. Uh, but but it, if you're in your country and you are a citizen, you're able to conduct business. You're able to to uh, seek out medical help, participate in the government. You have lots of legal protections and privileges. But if you've ever traveled to another country, uh, you you know it. You feel the uncertainty, the insecurity. Uh, you know, for example, every time I travel to another country, you, you you might wonder about your medical insurance. You know, you need you need to get travel insurance. Uh, you whether you wonder if your money's going to work. I mean, last time I was in Vanuatu, uh, that was really concerning. I was I was really concerned about running out of money. 
So those of you who helped that, by the way, thank you. But uh, you, you might wonder whether you're going to have the legal rights if you somehow get in trouble. Uh, these, these are all things that strangers and foreigners and aliens are concerned about. So when you're a stranger in a strange land, all those things and, and other things might make you feel vulnerable and insecure. And by the way, having citizenship in the ancient world meant you had special rights and protection. For example, uh, hopefully you've read uh, uh, in, in the book of Acts, chapter 16, uh, maybe this will help you to understand what's going on here, that, and this is the whole reason why the, the city officials at Philippi were concerned, because uh, you remember in Acts 16, hopefully, that uh, they had actually beaten the Apostle Paul and Silas, and and they did all this without a trial. And so they became alarmed when they learned that, that those two guys were actually Roman citizens. And you say, well, why are they were why were they alarmed? Because they knew uh, those officials knew the protection of Rome could be exercised against them for the treatment of their own citizens. And so what Paul here is reminding us we're fellow citizens. He's reminding us that we have the protection of heaven. We are citizens of heaven, and so because of that, we get all these privileges and rights of our heavenly citizenship, and and so that with that comes great protection, great security, and so we can shout and hallelujah. We we can say amen. Are you ready for some more good stuff? I'm sure you are. Well, there, there's there. It gets even better. There, there's more benefits, more security here, showing us just how dear we are to God. Well, here's point number three. So you're, you're no longer a foreigner. You become a fellow citizen, and then God adopts you into His family. And 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 guess what? All of His adopted children together make up His family, as it says there in verse nineteen. So you're, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we have the benefits of being in God's family. And that is awesome, if you think about it. Just meditate on that this week. Uh, what does it mean to have all the, the benefits of being in God's family? Now we need to remember, who is Paul talking to here? He, he's saying this to people who are very different in ethnicity, different in class, different in their origin, and now they're in the same family, and it's not just any family. This family is very special. They are members of God's family. And that's awesome because adopted children can be assured that God is their father, and that it brings security. It just shows how dear we are to God. So how can we be sure of this? Uh, you, you might be thinking, man, that sounds awesome, but can I really be 100% sure? Well, God says we are in his family. Can you trust God? We're treasured in his house always. God says we are. So whatever transitions come, the love of our Father is never going to waver. And his heavenly power and protection are active on our behalf whenever we, it uh, doesn't matter where, where we go, because now we're citizens of his kingdom and members of his family. And with that comes some 
wonderful rights and privileges that should just show just how dear we are and bring us security. And so if believers have that, then no distinctions before God, should we have no distinctions among ourselves? Should we have distinctions among ourselves? No, we shouldn't. Why is that? Well, we're fellow citizens. We're fellow family members. We're equal in every spiritual way before God. And so if God accepts each one of us, how can we not accept each other? And this has always been a problem in the church. Disunity is, is a constant issue you see popping up in the, in the books of the New Testament. So it's something we need to be concerned about. We should, we shouldn't, should we? There shouldn't be disunity. There should be unity. So the words of the text sound wonderful. But our fears and our failures make us wonder sometimes how confident then we, we can actually be of God's unfailing love. How strong is our relationship? You know, a lot of people wonder, well, can, can we lose that relationship? How sure can we be of heaven's love? Well, I'm glad you asked, my friends, because... You can find the answers here in the text. Look at the second point. So not only are we dear to God, that's point number one, but we are secure in God. We are secure in God. What a great truth that is. We have security. Isn't that what we want? Well, I hope you do. But the question is, how can I know that God will not change his mind? That would be scary. If God could change his mind. Can God change his mind? Well, here's the answer found in, and, and it's found in the construction of God's own house. Now, there's three three parts of the construction of God's house that, that it's mentioned here in this passage. First of all, we see we have an inspired foundation. What's the foundation? Well, it's right there in verse 20. The foundation of of God's household, says here it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You probably know that nothing is more important to a building than a solid, stable foundation. And the Holy Spirit here says the church's foundation is the apostles and prophets. Well, who are they? There are some, There is some confusion on this. Well, the apostles are the special men whom Jesus chose. Uh, Jesus called them and he authorized them to teach in his name. And they were the eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And of course, this consists of the, the 12 original ones, plus the apostle Paul. The word prophets also indicates inspired teachers to whom the word of God uh, came to them and and who conveyed that word to others faithfully. And so, uh, that, well, sorry, that's, that's the, the prophets. They, the prophets indicates inspired teachers here to whom the word of God came and who conveyed that word to others faithfully. And so that those two words combined, apostles and prophets, uh, may bring together the Old Testament and the New Testament. Notice I said may. I, I'm not, I'm not confident on that, although, some commentators say that. Um, but notice the the inverted order of the words. So it's starting with apostles. And, and so I think that's suggesting that probably the New Testament 
uh, it's talking about New Testament prophets as opposed to Old Testament prophets is what is actually meant here. So what's the point? Well, in practical terms, this means the church then is built on the New Testament scriptures. Here's what one commentator said, quote, I'll put it on the screen here for you. Uh, so one, one commentator said this, that the foundation of the apostles and prophets refers to the divine revelation that they taught, which in its written form is the New Testament, because the Greek genitive case appears to be used in the subjective sense, signifying the originating agency. The meaning is not that the apostles and prophets were themselves the foundation though in a certain sense they were, but that they laid the foundation. Paul spoke of himself as a wise master builder who laid a foundation and went on to say, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And that's in 1 Corinthians 3. Well, another commentator uh, was very helpful to me as well. He says this, the New Testament scriptures are the church's foundation documents. And just as a foundation cannot be tampered with once it has been laid and the superstructure is being built upon it, so the New Testament foundation of the church is unbreakable and cannot be changed by any additions, subtractions, or modifications offered by teachers who claim to be apostles or prophets today. I hope that helps you, but he goes on, that's John Stott here, goes on to say that the church stands or falls by its loyal dependence on the foundation truths which God revealed to his apostles and prophets, which are now preserved in the New Testament scriptures, end quote. So we have a, a divine foundation. It is the, the, the scriptures, the word of God, the Bible, and it's, it's sure, it's stable, it's and uh, for us, it's something that, that we don't have the right to tamper with this. <laughs> Sadly, there are people who add and take away and, and twist to their own means. We should never do that. The church shouldn't do that. It is something that is settled forever in heaven, the Bible says. So, uh, but, but those of us who don't want to add or take away, we know that this is something that is reliable. It is profitable. And it should bring us some great security. Let's look at the, the, the second part of this building that's mentioned here. We see that uh, not only do we have this foundation, but the, we have a divine cornerstone. A divine cornerstone. Uh, according to verse 20, it says that Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. Now, why is that important? In case you don't understand the the analogy of the cornerstone here, let me help you out. The cornerstone determines the stability of the foundation and the in fact the whole character of the entire building is coming out of that cornerstone. The cornerstone decided the architectural unity and the symmetry of a building. Uh, the lay of the walls and the dimensions of the structure were a result of the chief cornerstone. It, it helped to hold the building steady. It also set it. It, it. it even kept its line. And all the other stones then had to be adjusted to that. As I was thinking about the cornerstone, because I'm not, I'm not a builder or an architect or anything like that, so I don't fully understand this. I was thinking about 
the the temple in Jerusalem. This got me thinking if uh, if they if they use this the foundation stones and the cornerstone of the temple in Jerusalem and they did and I found out that uh, the Jerusalem temple had huge cornerstones and huge foundation stones. In fact, there was a guy named uh, Armitage Robinson. He mentions uh, in his book that there's one ancient stone that was actually excavated from the southern wall of the temple. Uh, you can see just how big the foundation stones of the of the uh, the so- the southern uh, temple mount wall are here. Uh, they're big, right? Bigger than that guy. Uh, but but he found one that was actually 38 feet or, or approximately 12 meters in length. And that's not even the biggest one. Uh, as I was doing some research on this, I found, uh, I'm assuming those dimensions are correct, but apparently the biggest one's in the western wall. The largest stone was measuring 12 by 45 foot. That's, by the way, that's about 4 meters by 14 meters. So these are massive, huge, very heavy stones, uh, and they needed to be because everything is set from that. Uh, all those, the huge temple mound is is built on that. And you say, well, what's the point of this? Well, the shape and the stability of God's new temple is determined by Jesus Christ. You need something that brings great unity, something that's going to bring stability. Here And, of course, that's exactly what Jesus does. See, the unity and growth are coupled together here. And, of course, Christ then is the the secret of both of those. And so, as a building depends for both its cohesion and its development on being tied securely to the cornerstone, so Christ then is indispensable to the church's unity and growth. And so, unless the church is constantly and securely related to Christ, what, what, he's, what do you think is going to happen to the unity and the growth of the church? Well, the church's unity will disintegrate. Its growth is either going to stop altogether, or it's just going to run wild. So what do we need to do here, my friends? Uh, we need to build our lives. We need to build our church on the chief cornerstone. Uh, he... He's also the head of the church, we'll find out later in Ephesians. So, so, so he needs to be first, and then everything needs to come out of him. Everything will be straight, will be accurate, and be stable. So look to Christ. And we, we need to be glad, by the way, that our lives then are built on something that is solid, built on the solid rock. Why? Well, in Christ, we're totally secure. But there's a third part of the construction we haven't mentioned yet. So, so there's the foundation, there's the cornerstone. But we can also learn something that, that helps to give us security here is that we, we as the church have a holy purpose. We have a holy purpose. Look at verse 21. Because it says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So you take all those construction parts, the foundation, the cornerstone, and, and then the, the, the rest of the structure all together is making up this holy temple in the Lord. That's good news. 
and you say, well, what's the purpose of this temple? Well, just as God first took up residence in the tabernacle, the Old Testament, and then he later filled the Jerusalem temple with his, the, the Shekinah glory. So now, what, what is he doing? He's making the church his dwelling place. And as a result, then, all Christians have become God's temple. Now, what's the purpose of this new temple? What's the purpose of the new temple? Well, in, in, in principle... It's the same as the purpose is the old, namely to be a dwelling place of God, as verse 22 says, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there's your purpose. Of course, God does not dwell in man-made temples. God doesn't dwell in man-made buildings today. Nevertheless, he did promise to show his glory in the temple's inner sanctuary here. Why did he do that, by the way? In order to, to symbolize the truth that he dwelt among his people. God dwelt among his people. However, the new temple is, is not a material building. It's not a national shrine. It's, it's not a localized site anymore. It's a spiritual building. It's an international community, and it, and it it's not localized in a place like Jerusalem. It's, it has a worldwide spread now. And so this is where God now dwells. He's not tied to holy buildings, but to now to, to a holy people. And, and to them, he's pledged himself by a solemn covenant. So now he lives in the holy people individually and, and as well as a community. And so then what, what has now replaced the Shekinah glory in the temple as this symbol of God's presence? Well, Paul answers the question here, and he says, what, what's, what's replaced the Shekinah glory is, is now the, the church is both a holy temple and a dwelling place for God. And that's incredible if you think about it, because as Paul wrote his letter here, I, I've meant, I mentioned this a long time ago, but as, remember, in Ephesus, as Paul's writing this letter, uh, there, there stood this magnificent marble temple. The, the temple of, uh, as uh, the Greeks called it, Artemis, or the Romans. It was the temple of Diana, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was bigger than the Parthenon in Greece. Uh, and, and there in the inner shrine was the statue of the goddess. And then at the same time as this, back in Jerusalem, there was the, the Jewish temple that was, remember, it was barricading itself against the Gentiles. Gentiles weren't allowed in there, and, and, and they were barricading themselves even against God himself. And so think about those two temples. Two temples, one pagan, the other was Jewish, each designed as a divine residence for their God but both of them were empty of the living God. Where was the living God residing? It was residing within the believers in Ephesus. I like what one commentator said. Quote, For now there is a new temple, a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. It is his new society, his redeemed people scattered throughout the inhabited world. They are his home on earth. 
and they will also be his home in heaven, for the building is not yet complete. So notice, God's still building his new temple here. So what else? Oh, sorry, it goes on to say that it, it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And only after the creation of the new heaven and the new earth will the voice from the throne declare with emphatic finality. You'll, you'll see this in Revelation. It says, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. So that's how your Bible ends. Uh, God dwelling with his church. What else can we learn? We're vital to God because, well, here, here, that's, sorry, that's the third point. We're all vital to God. Each one of us together are vital to God. Notice what God's doing. Because we see here we're built together. We are built together. Isn't God's plan awesome? But we should not overlook God's use of individuals here to fulfill his purposes. Yeah, yeah, we need to think of the, uh, the, the universal here, but you also need to think of individuals because each one of us has a purpose. So look how Paul is describing how we function together. So he says we are built together in verse 22, built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Question for you to think about, what are the bricks that form the walls of this house of God? Well, the point is that you are, I am, we together are making up the walls of this building. And as I read verse 22, I'm also thinking of Peter's image here in 1 Peter 2. Peter says this, as you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What a fabulous image there. You are living stones. And together, you're, you're put together in this spiritual house. So my friend, you are being fitted into God's eternal plan. And as he's building his temple, his house here, that means it, each one of you are precious, you're important. And so as one of those stones or bricks, you are then supporting other bricks. How do you do that? Well, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can you can support each other in prayer, and, uh, in resources, and encouragement, and Offering our even our own lives as examples and, and sacrificing for the sake of others and all those things and more, you can support each other. So we are together then as a result, rising to become a temple of God and then each one of us is vital. So what are some applications for us to think about here? Well, first of all, the, as we, we think about the living stones being built up as a spiritual house there. Think of this, that the stones placed into this great structure are chosen and shaped for their position by God. It's his temple. It's his house, his building. God's the architect. And therefore, it's not for us to determine where we're going to fit in or how we fit into the structure. 
And so here's what you need to think about, my friend, is are you then yielded and surrendered to his will for your life? Don't fight him. Are you yielded and surrendered? Uh, a second application to think about is that the stones are placed into position in relationship to Jesus Christ. See, he's the cornerstone, and everything's coming out of him. Uh, they're attached to him, and if not, then they're not part of the building. So my question is, are you a part of the building? Are you attached to the cornerstone? A third thing to think about is that the stones are of different shapes and sizes, perhaps even made of different materials, and they're employed for different functions. Uh, some serve in one way, some in another. So I ask you, my friend, are you serving your function and how God has designed you? So, for example, like this uh, this beautiful church building here, uh, you'll see it has the uh, cornerstone reference to Jesus Christ there. But then coming out of that cornerstone is all these other stones. So if you can just picture this image here as the living stones are attached to the cornerstone and together they make up this beautiful building. That's, that's what we're doing. We, we, we then become this dwelling place for God. And so think of that. The, the stones are linked to one another. And that's the fourth point where I want to make here is that uh, from where they're placed, then they can't always see each other. Right, stones on the uh, the north side, for example, can't see the the south side, and so forth. They can't see each other, but nevertheless, they're part of one interlocking whole building. So, are you working together with all of the other stones? Uh, too often, there's divisions and fights within the church, and of course, that makes for uh, it's not glorifying God, and it makes for a, an unstable building. So, are you working together with the other stones? A fifth point is this, that the stones of the temple are chosen. They're shaped and placed. For what purpose? They're, they're not there to draw attention to themselves. I, I'm not a part of this, and you're not a part of this, to, to glorify yourself. You're, but you're to be contributing to this great building which God alone dwells. So, are you? Are you doing that? And sixth and last year is that the placing of each of the stones is only part of a long work that began thousands of years ago in the past, and it's continued since then and will continue until the end of the age when Jesus Christ returns. So are you patiently enduring to the end? We don't know when that end is, but are you patiently enduring to the end? So here's a second point for you to consider is, is we're thinking about here is how we're, we're all vital to God. This is our, uh, uh, one of those fixed stars, the third fixed star, in fact, that we need to think about. But so not only are we built together, but number two, it says we are, we are spirit indwelt. Spirit indwelt. Cause it's, God is dwelling in this building. It's his dwelling place for God in verse 22. But notice it's, by the Spirit. So at the end of, of chapter 1, uh, the apostle said that God is transforming the world for the church 
and by the church. And so now, Paul's kind of elaborating on that. We're, hopefully you're beginning to see how the church, in other words, the, the body of Christ is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and has Jesus Christ himself here as the chief cornerstone. And so, as a result, the construction's rising to heaven, and it's it's doing that through this interwoven destiny of of every Christian together. But inside the walls is is living the Holy Spirit. Each individual Christian has the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And then together we we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so this building, of course, is composed of human elements. But it's alive and, it, and it's filled with his power. And then God lives in that temple by building our lives together. Do you know what that means, my friends? Do you know what that means? It means that the days of glory are not past. Not past. God's not done working. And so the God who brings us together and dwells us for his purposes even now, he's not done. There's still a task for his building, for his church, and he's dwelling in us so we might fulfill those purposes. And so therefore, until he comes... We are in his plan for each other and for this world. And so this sense of purpose here is what's going to inspire us to fresh courage, faithfulness, and zeal. And so my friend, as long as you're still breathing, you must fulfill God's purposes for your life. Are you doing that, though? Are you? How are you doing it, that? Do you really believe this, this truth here, that you're, vital to God and you're built together and your spirit indwelt. My friend, you need to believe that God will graciously accomplish his purposes in and through you and through the church. So my friends, that is the portrait of God's new community. Some have called it a new society or a, or the third race. And it's a beautiful masterpiece. That's the point. God's made his masterpiece and has continued to make his masterpiece. So uh, the, the point, though, is not to look at the masterpiece and say, wow, that's awesome. But the point for God is, is you look at the masterpiece is to look to the one who made the masterpiece and say, wow, isn't, isn't the master awesome? Isn't God amazing? And so through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, what have we seen here? Aliens become citizens. Strangers become family. The idolaters become the temple of the true God. And the hopeless uh, have now inherited the promises of God. Those without Christ become one in Christ. Those who were far off are brought near. And we, we also see that the godless are then reconciled to God and then are given access to God himself. So praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. Because there's this reconciliation of people to God and then people to each other. There, there, there's no longer alienation, but then there's a reconciliation vertically as well as horizontally. And so now, as a result of God's work, we can fulfill God's purposes for the church and in the church. Do you want to do that? I hope you do. It's a glorious masterpiece. It's a glorious community. And uh, you can be a part of that if uh, if you're surrendered 
and uh, yielded to the to the Spirit who should be indwelling you. May God enable us to fulfill His purposes individually and corporately. Let me just pray for you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for this glorious masterpiece, this uh, this new community that you are continuing to build, and we look forward to its completion. Uh, we look forward to Christ's return, and we look forward to even our own glorification when uh, you'll be you'll you'll finish the work that you have begun. We're thankful that we can be a part of this. Thank you for making us these living stones and giving us a a foundation and a cornerstone that gives us great security and stability and and growth and direction. So may we understand the fixed stars, the guiding stars here, and as we go through life of of uncertainty, uh, where where our world is just an utter mess, even our lives sometimes are a mess. Uh, may we continue to look at these fixed stars and may they help us and guide us and bring total security to us. But but as we do this, may we remember it's not for us, it's for your honor and your glory. May we, may we bring uh, the right opinion of you even to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.